0: spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine with the weather warming up it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a pilates class or outdoor guided walk peloton has everything you need to help you get going get a head start on summer with peloton at onepeloton.com here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact
1: The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number one in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, February the 4th. First, I'll be talking to Yair Miron. Founder and CEO of Israeli startup Rise.ai, which has been making gift cards available to purchase on Facebook and Instagram, allowing small and medium-sized businesses and enterprises to boost sales, loyalty, engagement and traffic. This lets small and medium businesses and enterprises sell digital gift cards to their local community through Facebook and Instagram using the customer's geolocation. This will enable businesses to reach many new customers, increase traffic and maintain their activity during the COVID-19 crisis. And then I'll be talking to economist Saul Eslac about what's ahead for the economy in 2022. But now let's talk to Yair Miron. Yair, uh tell us about Rise AI. Uh, you make gift cards available for businesses and the gift cards can be purchased on Facebook and Instagram. Is that right?
2: Right. So the whole Facebook and Instagram uh, cooperation is kind of new. We started with helping merchants to build their own gift card program meaning being able to use store credit and gift cards for re-engage with customers. And in the last couple of minutes, gift cards became quite big. You know, the, A lot of merchants use gift cards literally as their credit lines. And so suddenly there was a rush of companies to try to use it in different ways. And Facebook, as part of their it attempt to help small merchants, decided to, to allow merchants selling gift cards directly from their Instagram page and send Facebook users uh, to virtual gift cards in order to help them purchase them.
1: So how did Facebook come to select you? I mean, you're an Israeli startup. I mean, how did they come to select you guys?
2: That's a good question, actually. I keep asking myself that question, I guess. And, and the answer is that uh, we had, I guess, a long enough record of working with small merchants, with SMBs, and helping them build great gift card programs. I can say that, that discussions with Facebook were mainly about uh, the number and the size of, of stores that we can help. And our advantage is that we're working with merchants uh, all over the globe.
1: All over the globe.
2: Yeah, yeah, more than sixty countries actually. Uh, really? Most of them are from North America. Yes, I I'd say that U.S. and Canada are biggest countries. But as you know, Australia and New Zealand are also big, and a lot of countries in Europe. Actually, it started with the EMEA, uh, and then moved forward to other continents. What what type of merchants are they? So, there are so many industries that use gift cards today. Uh, there is uh, food and beverage, obviously, which is quite big now because, you know, they're one of the biggest, the, the quarantine impacts them quite, quite hard. as But also fashion companies and uh, a lot of, a lot of, I would say a lot of industries, uh, jewelry uh, everything that you can sell online today. If your brand is, is advanced enough, you would want to use gift cards in order to take it to the next step.
1: Why, why do merchants use gift cards? I mean, why, why, why gift cards as a line of business? Why do they take that?
2: Okay, so so basically, in financial terms, you can you could treat a gift card as, as kind of I'd say uh, money that I give to the store, and I want to redeem it only in the future. Some kind of lending, I'd say. And when this crisis came, a lot of merchants wanted to use this kind of, of uh, finance. You know, the, the, the traditional options weren't that available. I can say that we saw an amazing trend of communities that come to help the merchants. Uh, I can send you examples, whether we in New Zealand and in England and in, in states in the US When local communities, wanted to help local businesses, and then they said, okay, we'll take uh, local cafes, local restaurants, buy gift cards in new places, and we'll use that once things are going to be normal again. And we helped them to build the engine that created that effect.
1: And in effect, it's like a credit machine, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it, it, exactly that. That's, that's a credit machine, and... and that's a credit that can help merchants to, to maintain their business when there's no uh, cash flow of regular uh, sales.
1: It's interesting that Facebook and Instagram are getting into this. Why, why the focus from Facebook and Instagram and how does that change everything?
2: So here, you know, it's, it's my two cents. I'd say that Facebook would have more official uh, answer, but I can say that in the last uh, couple of months, they heavily invested in communities and in local communities. And they have a lot of different things that they do in order to, to build the relationship with the communities. And I can say that when COVID uh, just emerged, uh, they came to us and they discussed with us what, what would be the best way to help our children. So I'd say that in that case, they really want to find ways to help the community and help small businesses
1: it's interesting that on facebook and instagram it then become uh, it doesn't matter where the customers located they can actually go to a company i mean if you're in australia they can go to a company in north america or if you're in north america they can go to a company in australia would right. that be right
2: yeah that's right for uh, for the instagram initiative for the for the facebook initiative the mechanism is even more interesting because What they do is, uh, let's say you're in the street in Melbourne, you'll get a push notification to your Facebook app saying there is Leon's Cafe next in the corner and it's closed now. Maybe it's open now, but you can buy a gift card and and help them uh, during uh, these times. So I think it's an interesting combination of uh, local help and global help that this technology can help uh, businesses with.
1: And, and there's been quite a rise in the number of businesses using this then because, sure. of, it, because of the COVID crisis.
2: Of course. I'd say that for businesses, you know, for small businesses, when when the world is normal, so, you know, you and I, we walk in the street, we see the coffee place that we like and, and we buy a coffee. But being discovered when your local business is closed, it's basically almost impossible. Uh, so... This option of of being discovered and, again, selling uh, whatever you can sell during these times, it became very, very popular for merchants. Gift cards in general, I'd say, and this specific option of selling gift cards on social
1: media. Now, you did some research on this, didn't you?
2: Yeah, what, did your,
1: what did your survey find?
2: So in our research, we tried to see in numbers how, uh, how the COVID affected uh, these kinds of, of events and how it affected the sales of gift cards. And we found that during the first six weeks of the crisis between March 13 and April 24, the percentage of stores offering digital gift cards to their customers grew in almost 40%. Uh, when you compare it to the prior six weeks, and uh, we also found out that a lot of stores started to actively promote gift cards, meaning not just having the gift card option in their back end of the store, but putting that in the in the homepage and sending uh, communications to customers about the gift card options. And we saw the bottom line saying that the responses for store credit customers grew in twenty one percent. When you compare it to the prior six weeks,
1: forty percent—that's quite extraordinary. Yeah, but it, but, it, but yeah. it does indicate uh, how um, how the COVID crisis did affect business if they were mo- moving in that direction.
2: Definitely, definitely. Again, I think it was one of the most uh, valid options to to engage with the stores and to help them. In many, in many places, gift cards used to be something that. People buy to to their friends and family during the the holidays or birthdays, and the understanding that this is a a legit uh, store credit, a legit way to to exchange money, became very clear to many businesses during the last couple of months.
1: Well, what that would indicate would be surely that once the crisis passes, and I assume one day it will. There will be a time. There will be a time uh, when yeah. business will return to normal. But you would assume from this experience that uh, gift cards will become a more important part of businesses everywhere, rather than a, a gift.
2: I couldn't agree more. I can say that you know we you know we live this industry for for a couple of years, and the big players you know Amazon, Walmart they use gift card as credit lines for, for so long. And, you know, Amazon gift card is obviously a very big brand, mm. but they're very aware of the effect of that for customer engagement and for upsells of, of the brand. Mainly to, again, to have another way to, to use credit lines. Amazon is a company that's very important for them. And I do think that, that it helps millions of, of SMBs around the world to understand the importance of that, and I'm sure they're going to use it after the crisis.
1: Well, well, companies, well, companies like companies like Amazon and Walmart have distinctive communities, and so these small businesses will be looking to say, "Hey, let's establish a community for our business through the gift card." Would you agree with that?
2: Correct. Yeah. Again, gift cards. You know, we. Our technology allow, allow merchants to use gift cards as a loyalty card. When yeah, you can you know, get store credit for actions that you do in the store, and if you want to refund something, you get it to the loyalty card. And basically, they, that's that's the idea. Like having the relationship with your local community, and being you know once once you have it in your top of the wallet, you remember the place. Yeah,
1: yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, yeah, it's been fascinating talking to you and fascinating talking about your business. And uh, thank you very much for your time. You do. And now let's talk to economist Saul Esla. Well, Saul, how do you see the economy travelling in 2022?
0: It's a little hard to tell how the economy's travelling in the early weeks of 2022 because. On the one hand, we suspect from anecdotal evidence that a significant part of the economy has been adversely affected by the rapid spread of Omicron variants of COVID-19 since mid-December. We know, for example, that quite a lot of people haven't been able to go to work because they've either caught the virus or been a close contact of someone who has, and that's affected some businesses. We know that perhaps a lot of people are voluntarily restricting their movements for fear of catching the virus and that's affecting quite a lot of services businesses. On the other hand we also know from previous experience and from the data that the banks collect and publish about what they see passing through their spending channels that people are capable of spending money in different ways, even if they aren't going out and about as they might have done in healthier times. So we'll probably have to wait until February or March when data on January becomes more widely available to see exactly what's happened. The one potentially hopeful sign is that evidence from overseas is that the Omicron variant, although it spreads very widely, also peters out after a while, as it appears to have now done in South Africa. So if that is an accurate precursor of what's going to happen in Australia, then once the Omicron wave has peaked, the very significant savings, which Australians have accumulated since the onset of COVID, as reflected in the some 222 billion of additional bank deposits they've put away since February 2020, combined with what appears to be a strong labour market, the unemployment rate at 4.2% in December, and there now being barely more than 1.5 unemployed people for every job vacancy, the lowest that ratio has been in more than 40 years, does suggest that once people are feeling healthy and safety again, the economy should rebound quite strongly over the balance of the first half of 2022. The one big question mark that's been raised at the end of January, of course, is that inflation appears to have risen more quickly than the Reserve Bank had anticipated. And that may well mean now, contrary to what the Reserve Bank has been saying and what I had myself been thinking, that we could actually see the first couple of increases in interest rates occurring this year, rather than in the first half of 2023, as I had thought, or 2024, as the Reserve Bank had been saying until quite late last year.
1: Right okay and of course uh, that will affect the economy because there's a lot of debt out there there's a lot of household debt uh, corporate debt and government debt
0: Yes there is I mean governments won't have any trouble servicing their debts even if interest rates were half or 1 percentage point higher than they are today and corporates don't have as much debt relative to the size of the economy or their revenues as they did for example at the end of the 1980s but Australian households are amongst the most indebted in the world. Most of that debt is at floating rates. So the cost of servicing it does respond quite quickly to movements in the official cash rate, unlike the United States, where most mortgage debt is fixed for 30 years. And the Reserve Bank will have to tread very carefully as it seeks to return interest rates gradually to more normal settings it has a communications problem as well because although i don't doubt the governor of the reserve bank would say he never made a promise that rates wouldn't go up until 2024 you could forgive the average borrower for thinking that that's what he's done And although towards the end of last year, the Reserve Bank backed away from its insistence that it wouldn't be raising rates until 2024, it was saying that it wouldn't be raising rates in 2022, or at least that's how I think most of the public would have interpreted their statements. And if they do find with inflation now in the upper half of the Reserve Bank's two to 3% target band, They need to lift nominal rates in the second half of the year, if only to prevent the decline in real interest rates that's occurred over the last six months at a time when the economy is in a much stronger position than it was when they cut rates to their present levels in November 2020. Um, They're going to have to explain the reasons for that very very carefully so that people are not unduly frightened about the extent to which interest rates will ultimately rise.
1: Uh, It's interesting, because in the States, the market is now Wall Street's uh, gone into nosedives because of the anticipation of the Fed raising rates. Do you see the same thing happening
0: here? Well, the Fed has a much more different problem and difficult problem from the Reserve Bank of Australia, because in the United States, headline inflation is 7.1% over the year to December, and core inflation, as they define it, is 5.5%. Those numbers are significantly higher than the 3.1 and 2.6% rates for headline and core inflation in Australia, respectively. So we don't have nearly as big an inflation problem as the Federal Reserve has. And in addition, uh, wage inflation in the United States is running at its highest rate in 30 years, whereas here in Australia, although wage inflation has ticked up a little bit in the year of the September quarter, which is the most recent data we have, it's still running at a significantly lower pace than the 3.5% which the Reserve Bank has previously signalled would, in its view, be consistent with consumer price inflation being sustainably at the midpoint of its target range. So the need which the Federal Reserve faces to raise rates, and for that matter, the Bank of England in the UK needs to raise rates, is rather more urgent than the one facing the Reserve Bank of Australia. Of course, for the stock market, that's little consolation because the Australian stock market, like stock markets all over the world, take their cue from what happens on Wall Street. And Wall Street is rightly factoring in at least three and possibly four increases in interest rates this year, starting as early as March. Whereas I suspect on the basis of what we can see at the moment. The Reserve Bank will be contemplating at most two increases in rates, one of which will only be 15 basis points and the other 25, and they probably won't occur until the second half of this year.
1: And of course, because wage inflation has stayed fairly low, it won't affect bracket
0: creep with wages. Well, it shouldn't, but that does depend on how quickly wages rise. Um, We do now have a significantly tighter labour market in Australia. The unemployment rate of 4.2 is the lowest it's been since August 2008. And apart from a few other months in 2008, it's lower than it's been at any time since the mid 1970s. And it could well be that in the second half of this year, the unemployment rate is below 4% for only the second time since 1974. As I mentioned before, there are now only one and a half unemployed people for every job vacancy. And although the government signal that it's going to allow more international students and skilled migrants into the country in an attempt to fill some of those vacancies. There's no guarantee that migrants are going to come in those numbers. And if there's a change of government, then a Labor government after the next election may not be so keen as the coalition was pre-COVID to allow in large numbers of unskilled migrants. So we could see an acceleration in wages pressure, More rapidly than the Reserve Bank has anticipated in the same way that we have in the last two quarters seen a more rapid acceleration in price inflation. And that would mean that the Reserve Bank would be under continuing pressure in 2023 as well to lift interest rates back, if not to the levels they were, say, in 2018 or 19, nonetheless to a higher level than people would have anticipated in the middle of 2021. The other issue, of course, with the pandemic
1: is that uh, it's affected supply chain issues too, which is affecting business. It has.
0: It's done that globally, and we're seeing some of the effects of that here in Australia with what's happened to the prices of Things that are imported like motor vehicles and uh, furniture and a range of household appliances. And there have been some supply chain disruptions within Australia as well, particularly as a result of the higher level of absenteeism in recent weeks with so many workers being sick or being close contacts of people who've been sick. I think it's reasonable to assume that many of those supply chain disruptions in Australia will be temporary and that businesses will find workarounds to manage them until people are feeling much more healthy than they have done in the early weeks of 2023. If I'm wrong about that, then uh, inflationary pressures could well persist for longer as they have done in the United States and the UK. But I think there are different factors at work. In the UK, for example, uh, the impact of Brexit on immigration and hence the supply of labour is a permanent feature of life in the UK, whereas we don't have anything like that here in Australia, as far as one can tell at the moment question
1: for the Reserve Bank, and and for that matter, all central banks, is whether these inflation pressures are temporary because of COVID. Well,
0: there are actually two factors at work there, Leon. One is that they do have to make a judgment about how persistent the inflationary pressures from COVID that have played some role in the acceleration in inflation over the last six to nine months. They do have to decide how persistent they will be, and central banks are differing about that. For example, the Federal Reserve has officially decided that the word transitory should be retired. As Jerome Powell said just before Christmas. But on the other side of the Atlantic, the ECB seems to think that they will, for the most part, be transitory, with a possible exception of the escalation in the prices of natural gas that have played a big role in the pickup in inflation in the euro area. But the other point that central banks do have to contemplate is that they reduced interest rates to record lows during 2020 because of the unprecedented contraction in economic activity that was brought on by covid and the restrictions that governments put in place to stop its spread now the need for interest rates to be that low because of weakness in economic activity is passing and if central banks were to keep interest rates unduly low once the reason for them has passed then that would almost certainly guarantee that the rises in inflation that we have seen over the past nine months would be more likely to become persistent rather than transitory. And it could also further fuel some of the asset price bubbles in, for example, real estate around the world that have also been of concern to central bankers and others because of their potential consequences for financial stability, uh, as we should have learned from the global financial crisis of 14 years ago.
1: So what you're saying is with the outlook for the economy for 2022, uh, while the data is still too early, the big issue now facing us is... What happens with inflation?
0: And how central banks re- respond to that in terms of raising interest rates.
1: Indeed, indeed. Well, Saul, like thank you very much for your time.
0: That's a pleasure, as always, Dr. Gettler, and congratulations on your PhD.
1: Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Spotify's market capitalisation fell about $2.1 billion over a three-day span this week. Coming after folk rocker Neil Young yanked his songs from the audio streaming giant to protest Joe Rogan's misinformation-spreading podcasts. Shares of Spotify fell 6% from January the 26th to 28th. Over the same time period, the tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite Index rose 1.7%, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 1.1%. For the sake of comparison, Netflix's stock recovered a bit up 4.9% over the last three days after getting hammered following its January the 20 earnings report. Spotify stock closed Thursday, January the 27th, at a 19-month low of $171.32 a share. That came after Young said that he was demanding the company drop his music, saying that Spotify can have Rogan or Young, not both. Spotify removed Young's songs on January the 26th In a post on Wednesday, Young wrote that Spotify has recently become a very damaging force via public misinformation and lies about COVID, and referred to an open letter from doctors and health professionals issued earlier this month, calling on Spotify to crack down on coronavirus-related falsehoods on the Joe Rogan experience. To be sure, Spotify's stock price was already on the slide, having plummeted 25% year-to-date as of January 25, the day before Young's catalogue was pulled off, spotify Investors have been rattled by signals that Spotify's growth may be slowing, particularly after Netflix's warning of a significant cool-down in first-quarter subscriber net ads, which precipitated a 24% drop in its share price. Rogan, whose exclusive multi-year distribution deal with Spotify for his podcast is estimated to be worth $100 million, hosted the number one listened-to podcast on Spotify in 2021, according to the company. His flirtation with alt figures His anti-vax and anti-masking commentary has previously drawn fire from critics, including Dr Anthony Fauci. But the controversy over Rogan has blown up to a new level with Neil Young's protest. And more than a quarter of female workers at Rio Tinto Group have experienced sexual harassment and almost half of all staff have been victims of bullying according to a new report that's set to raise fresh investor questions over the mining giant's governance. A total of 21 women reported actual or attempted rape or sexual assault at company sites over the past five years, and racism was found to be widespread across operations in Australia and South Africa. The report is a result of a company-commissioned study that surveyed more than 10,000 employees on workplace culture, coming less than two years after the world's second-largest miner apologised for the destruction of ancient Aboriginal Australian heritage sites, The latest revelations over the extent of Rio Tinto's toxic work culture threatened to stoke new investor unrest. The external review, initiated last year after a spate of reports over misconduct at remote mine sites in Western Australia, will also undermine the industry's often loudly proclaimed ambitions to achieve better gender balance in historically male-dominated workforce and to champion broad diversity aims. Rio said it would implement all 26 recommendations contained in the findings for team led by former Australian Sex Discrimination Commissioner Elizabeth Broderick. Measures include making worker camps safer and creating an environment where people feel secure to report unacceptable behaviour. While the study covered Rio workplaces in locations including Canada, the US, Mongolia and Singapore, Most attention will be focused on Australia, which is home to iron ore mines that generate the bulk of profits, and where almost half of the firm's 45,000 staff and contractors are based. About 20% of Rio's workforce is female, according to the firm's most recent annual report. And Rio Tinto is yet to settle a $400 million royalty dispute with the traditional owners of a major Pilbara iron ore mine, more than 18 months after identifying significant underpayments to the Gumala Aboriginal Corporation. The ongoing argument over the extent of Rio's underpayments under the Yandagugino Land Use Agreement risks overshadowing the 25th anniversary of the landmark royalty deal in March and is a backdrop to the company's efforts to modernise other Pilbara royalty agreements with traditional owners. The dispute between Rio and GAC over payments due from the Yandegagina mine, first flared in mid-2020 when Rio identified more than $40 million in underpayments under the country's oldest royalty deal with traditional owners as the company scrambled to deal with the fallout from its disastrous decision to blast 46,000-year-old heritage sites at Jukang Gorge. But an audit conducted on behalf of GOC in 2021 claimed the underpayment could have been worth up to $400 million over the life of the agreement, with Rio's best offers to resolve the dispute believed to be worth less than half. ...of the GOC claim. And Daniel Grollo's luxury penthouse... ...taking up a whole floor of Melbourne's Eureka Tower... ...has been listed for sale... ...in the fallout from the Grocon collapse... It is being sold under instructions from Walcorda Mentha as administrator at Grocon ET eighty Proprietary Limited, which is subject to a deed of company arrangement. Offers closed march fifteenth for the eightieth floor apartment that had been home to the building tycoon and his former wife, Kat. Their indicative selling range is ten million dollars to eleven million dollars. The Gorillas paid six point two five million for their shell in two thousand seven. The four bedroom apartment has multiple living and dining zones, study, fitness room, five bathrooms, and eight car spaces. There are exquisite stone. Marble and timber finishes, plus high tech home automation, along with Wolf, Sub Zero, Boffy, and Miele appliances. There are mosaic frescoes by French artist Mathilde Jonquier. It's set in the iconic 300 metre high rise with a 24 hour concierge, residence, pool, gym, sauna, and cinema. And sales of electric cars in Australia have more than tripled in the past 12 months, growing to more than 24,000 off the back of state government rebates, discounts, and a more competitive domestic market driving down prices. The Electric Vehicle Council revealed the latest sales figures, showing there were 24,078 EVs sold in Australia last year, up from 6,900 in 2020. Data reveals battery and plug-in hybrid electric car sales grew to a 2.39% market share of new vehicles. That was still short of traditional petrol guzzlers, but up from 0.78 in 2020. Tesla topped the list, selling 15,054 Model 3Ss. Sales in New South Wales eclipsed the 6,900 electric vehicles sold nationwide in 2020, with 7,430 new registrations. There were 6,396 sales in Victoria, despite fierce criticism of the state government's proposed road user charging system. Almost 1,000 sales in the ACT increased the market share in the capital to 5.87%. The electric vehicle council data shows five of the top ten highest-selling models in Australia last year retail under $50,000. Chinese-owned MG ZS SUV was the second highest, with 1,388 cars sold. The MG HS model, which retails for about $46,990, was fourth, while the electric Mitsubishi Outlander, Hyundai Ioniq and Nissan Leaf also made up the top ten. And Australia's sovereign wealth fund, the Future Fund, has invested more than $90 million in weapons manufacturer Raytheon Technologies, whose laser-guided bomb was allegedly used in an airstrike on a detention centre in Yemen this month, killing nearly 100 civilians. Documents released under freedom of information law show the Future Fund, which invests on behalf of the Australian government, had $91.22 million invested in Raytheon as of December last year. Amnesty International said that a laser-guided bomb was used in an attack by the Saudi-led coalition on a detention centre in Saudi in north-west Yemen on 21st of January that killed at least 91 people and injured 200 more. It was described by the UN as the worst civilian casualty in- incident in the last three years in Yemen. And from explosive experts to truck drivers, labour shortages are becoming an increasing challenge for mine operators across Western Australia after state-abandoned plans to end COVID-related border controls. The state's resources industry, which is a crucial source of revenue for Australia, relies on flying in workers to remote sites. Many of the workers come from other states, and it has become increasingly difficult for them to travel, given border restrictions enforcing quarantine on an arrival in Western Australia, which is more than three times the size of Texas and comprises mainly of barren outback. The impact is also being felt beyond the mining and energy industry, with some top executives based in Western Australia's capital Perth signalling they intend to leave the state permanently. They're exasperated by Premier Mark McGowan's decision this month to backflip on a plan to reopen domestic and overseas borders on the February the 5th, extending in isolation from the rest of the world that began at the pandemic start two years ago. And the RBA board kept the official cash rate at a record low of 0.1% at its first board meeting for the year on Tuesday and terminated its $350 million pandemic bond-buying program, citing significant improvements in the jobless rate and the broader strength of the economy. The central bank also revised up its inflation forecast following a surprisingly strong December quarter. It now expects underflying inflation to peak at 3.25% later this year, before moderating in 2023. And Future Fund Chair and former Treasurer Peter Costello has thrown his support behind an inquiry into the Reserve Bank of Australia, claiming recent efforts to keep interest rates at historic lows had cast doubt over the credibility of its policies. Speaking during a portfolio update for the Future Fund on Tuesday morning, Mr Costello called on the RBA to end quantitative easing and release a plan for increasing the cash rate which he said was inevitable as inflationary pressures grow. And retail trade eased 4.4% lower in December after spiking in October-November as lockdown restrictions lifted across New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT. And economists tip... A rocky start to 2022. Retail trade was 8.7% higher over the quarter and at $32 billion, turnover was 4.8% higher through the year with post-lockdown consumption buoyed by Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales. Sales fell across all industries except food retailing. Department store sales were down 21.3% December, followed by clothing and accessories, down 17.3%, and household goods, down 9.3%. Spending on dining out remained steady and slightly ahead of pre-pandemic levels. Ben James, the Director of Quarterly Economy-Wide Statistics at the Bureau of Statistics, said the 4.4% fall was the largest monthly drop since April 2020, but sales remained elevated compared to pre-pandemic levels. And hundreds of BHP miners could face a sack for not handing over proof of their COVID-19 inoculation status after mining unions lost a critical challenge to the company's vaccine mandate. BHP confirmed on Monday that more than 91% of its Queensland employees at Mines in the Bowen Basin had provided evidence of double jabs after the company's deadline passed at midnight on Sunday. But that still left at least four hundredths of the state's 11,000 employees and contractors who had not yet provided proof. The deadline came as the Fair Work Commission rejected Queensland Mining Union's challenge to BHP's vaccination mandate on the grounds that the company's collection of workers-sensitive data breached privacy laws. The mining giant expects the proportion of vaccinated workers to continue to rise, with the numbers growing significantly since late December, when as many as 40% had not consented to confirming their vaccination status. However, Construction, Forestry, Maritime, Mining and Energy Union Queensland Mining Division President Stephen Smith said BHP had refused to extend its deadline. And the federal government is being warned that one-off cash payments to aged care workers will not stem a flood of staff leaving the industry. The Prime Minister used a speech in the National Press Club to announce that two $400 payments will be made to aged care workers across the country in recognition of the extraordinary pressure the sector is under. The union movement strongly criticised Scott Morrison's plans amid the Omicron surge in deaths and infections. More aged care residents died of COVID-19 in January this year than in total last year. Last month, unions and industry groups made a combined call for federal intervention suggesting cash payments to workers and even the deployment of military to ease staffing pressures. They argued the Omicron wave had exposed unresolved systemic funding and workforce issues that predated the pandemic. Critics and the health services union say the PM's one-off bonuses are too little, too late to stop the problem. Aged care workers have described such staffing shortages compounding as pressures force staff out of the industry, potentially for good. Some in the industry Say they are watching with concern as staff leave to take up other options in the healthcare sector, particularly around the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And it's a profit reporting season again. Mining and exploration company IGO has reported a 21% increase in revenue to $378 million, while underlying EBITDA was $226 million, resulting in an EBITDA margin of 60%. Medical gloves and protective suits maker Ansell forecast first-half sales for 2021-22 to be US $1.01 billion, that's Aussie $1.45 billion, and that earnings before interest and tax would be US $111 million. Accessories manufacture ARB sales revenues rose 26.5% to $359 million in six months ended December 31 from the year earlier period. ARB said it expects pre-tax profit to be between 90 million and 92 million. Credit Corp's net profit after tax increased 8% to 45.7 million in the first half of 2022 financial year, with its consumer loan book growing 9% to 200 million dollars. Small cap market darling Aussie Broadband still expects full-year EBITDA to finish between 27 million and 30 million dollars, including the contribution from its over-the-wire acquisition. Workplace software platform Elmo expects FY 2022 adjusted EBITDA between 1.5 million and 6.5 million on revenue between 91 million and 96 million dollars. Centuria Industrial REIT has listed its accounting profit 209% to 308.1 million after including a 256.7 million dollars upward revaluation of its property assets for the six months to December 31, 2021. The Future Fund hit a record $204 billion in the December quarter after returning 19.1% for 2021 against a target of 7.5%. Genworth Mortgage Insurance said unaudited total investment income was a loss of $10.6 million for FY21, including a loss of $11.6 million in the second half. Amcor's adjusted EBIT was up 5% to US. $769 million on a comparable, constant-currency basis. And that's it for this week. And next week, Friday, February 11th, I'll be talking to Pete Seglinski, the co-founder and CEO of the Seabid Project, which makes light work of some of the thousands of pieces of floating debris and plastics that enter Sydney's waterways. And I'll be talking to KPMG's senior economist and partner, Sarah Hunter, analysing the RBA's latest moves to keep interest rates on hold. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment, wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week.
0: Hey,
2: folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues